We there yet? We there yet? The podcast with Rich Kiamko. Ah, that's me. (laughs) Hi, it's Rich Kiamko. I'm here today on the WTY podcast with Marion Grodin. Hi, Rich. Hi, Marion. Live on location. I'm so excited to have you. You're my inaugural guest. I'm so happy to be. I love it. This is, uh, I'm, yeah, this is amazing. We're sitting here. I actually brought my Craigslist antique folding table with me. Can I say up. where we are? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we're on my Raymore and Flanagan <laughs> discount couch because if it has one little thing wrong with it, you get it for like $300 less. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and the cats a, are in the bedroom. Right, right. Cats are in the bedroom. I've taken tons of drugs. I have a sheet over my side of the sofa yes. just in case. Yes. I'm not sure why you have a sheet. Are you worried about an accident of some kind? No, I'm just I, you know, oh, I for the cats. For, for, yeah, for the allergies. Yeah. So in yeah. case I suddenly break out into hives yeah. in the middle of our interview. I understand. So oh, It's so good to be here. I, uh, so good to have you I'm on so my couch. I'm so excited that you are. Yeah, it's so great to be here yeah. live in Live on location in, in the Teaneck. In Teaneck. Live Teaneck, in Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, on the first on Rosh Hashanah. On oh. the first night of the new year. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh Taro Nailchenu. And uh Yentl. <laughs> I know nothing. Everything bagel really? and uh, cream cheese. Not Wait, really. Do you really? I, 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 I mean I, Jewish, real Jewish. I'm contemporary Jewish, you oh, know. Okay. Neurotic and therapy. I I'm like Woody Allen. You know, I don't like what he did to <laughs> Mia, but I like him. I still go to the <laughs> movies. I'm like adult contemporary Jewish. I, I know only a few phrases just from the few Jewish men that I've dated. I mean, I live in New York. You're yes, gonna, and you, you eat, you like, chi- you're Asian, so you eat Chinese food, and that's the main <laughs> thing that Jews do is eat Chinese right. food. So I'm basically right. half Jewish. Yeah, and you, and you appreciate good theater, so you're Jewish. Right, right, and, I, and I'm fussy. I'm you're, very fussy. You're very fussy. So. You are fussy. Well, you're homosexual. <laughs> that's appropriate. I'm less fussy because I'm like a little overweight Jew. <laughs> yeah. And this is why I love Marion Grodin and why Thank I'm having you. her on. She's Thank just, uh, I've, God, I've known you since 2012. It feels longer. I feel like I've had you in my life for a really long yeah. time. And I remember actually the way I met you was our friend who's a fabulous comic, Veronica Mosey, said to me one night, do you know Rich Kiamko? And I said, no. And she goes, you should know each other. You would like each other. Yeah. And she was right. Yeah. All right. I had really you. Really right. And you headlined Art House. Yes. Uh, on the laugh tour. And I and was. And the last time I was there, somebody projectile vomited all over the front row. <laughs> And the great thing about us is we just were like, fuck, can I curse? Yeah, yeah, We yeah. were like, fuck it, it just kept going. <laughs> we were like, get the people with the vomit out of the space and then just, like, finish the bit. <laughs> yeah, that's how stand-up is. It's war. Right, right, right. It's a battlefield. You're just it's like, keep going, keep going. Okay. Sometimes there's vomit on the field. Right. You just remove the body and yeah, keep going. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You, uh, the, the bad thing was a lot of people had been spewed, you know, had been sprayed. A lot right. of people had vomit on them. So we lost a lot of people because even somebody that was like, oh, there's something on my shoe. I was like, fuck, they're out. You know, whoever got vomited on was uh, gone. But those were all now, now I wasn't actually there. I was in I think I was in Las Vegas. I had you and David actually. I think David was there. Your husband my, was running things, husband was which running is always great. And the first time I did a show for Rich, his husband is older and Caucasian. And the first time I did a show for Rich, I didn't know either of them. And David walks toward me. I had no idea it was Rich's husband. And he's got a pie. And I thought, who is this lovely man from the senior center with like a pastry? <laughs> I had no idea that that was your partner. I didn't know. I thought, you know, he had adopted you. And when you were like, this is my husband, I was like, no, seriously, seriously. You're like, no, this is my husband. And now they're two of my best friends. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. You're like family. Yeah, you're definitely. definitely. Family. It's a, so, and you need that in our business. Well, I, I think that's like, that's your lifeline because it's such a hard, hard. You've got to have your tribe. You've got to have your community. I think you need that in general in life. But in show business, if you don't have that, it's a really lonely road. Right. Especially right. stand up. Yeah. So, I mean, that's also why, uh, like, we there yet. The idea of we there yet is is where is there? Like, when do we get there? Like, right. W- what is that place? I and mean, I think there's always, there's, like, levels. That, because I know, ultimately, spiritually, it's the journey. It's the comedy journey. Yes. But, like, wh- like moments in your life. Like, what was the moment 
you knew like, oh my God, comedy is my calling. Because it's not like you're, nobody has, I don't know any comics out there who have parents who are like, you're going to be a comedian, right? Well, I that's mean, not really true for me. It wasn't that my parents said I was going to be a comedian, but you know, my dad is one of the funniest people around. Charles Grodin. Right. And, um, you know, I- I- for me, there was never any discrepancy. There was never a divide between who I was and what I would do. Hmm. So it was like, I'm this really funny person. So for me to go into stand-up was a no-brainer. And for me to be a comedy writer and write sitcoms and screenplays and all this stuff I've done was a no-brainer. And actually, he's my biggest fan and my biggest supporter and so believes in my talent. And he has such a pure heart and pure spirit when it comes to just, like, God-given talent. Hmm. So, Hmm. you know, it wasn't a matter of, like, them saying you're going to be a comic. It was really more like I was a comic. Okay, but then when does – there's a moment, though. Like, there's one thing to be funny. There's another thing to be a great writer. But, like, to get on stage and do the actual act – because there's tons of people that think they're – that are funny at parties or funny in life. But to get on a microphone and into a room is a – that's, like, the moment of truth. But again, I I come back to this idea that, you know, I think for people, I have a really good friend, Buddy Fitzpatrick, a wonderful comedian, who always says, we didn't choose this, it chose us. Right. And I think that's really true. I think that it wasn't a matter of us, like, looking for, uh, you know, I don't want to sound lofty and say, like, it's a calling, but it wasn't a matter of looking for a career Mm. or a vocation. It was more a matter of this is who you are. It's just naturally coming off who you are. And then I think really what it comes down to, I sort of would flip this idea and say that it almost comes down to when you encounter real hardship, you have to go, well, wait a minute, is this who I am? Because it's so difficult. For example, the first time I was heckled, I had a show at the duplex and there was a Spanish woman sitting up front and I was talking to her and I hadn't been doing comedy that long, maybe a year or two. And I was just discovering my style, which is improv and talking to the audience predominantly. And I was talking to her and she was giving me nothing. And I was talking to her and she was icing me out. And finally she looked at me and she said, What's wrong? You don't have no jokes? And I said, what? And she said, no, but it's like, you want me to tell the jokes? I mean, you don't have no jokes? I mean, you come out and plus your clothes is wrinkly. (laughs) So she was like, you wrinkly and you don't have no jokes. And I started crying because I was like, I am wrinkly and I don't have any jokes. And, um... From now on, I iron and I come with jokes. But, <laughs> you know, I think it's almost more the adversity that calls into question, are you really this? Because anybody else would say, why would I do this? It's too hard. You can't make a living. It's, there's so much rejection. But if you're really a comic, you kind of can't quit it. Right, right, right. I mean, and also the thing that's interesting is of, of all the people in the industry – you're one of the greatest with crowd work, with improv. I mean, it's called you. crowd work in the industry, just for people listening, where you just talk to the room. I've seen, I mean, I've done shows with you where you did basically 45 minutes talking to table one, table two, table three, right. until you had done the entire room. I mean, we did, we did a scary one at that at that private. Right. with Nana. <laughs> with that right. resort. And, and, and you lost the crowd because somebody, right. it was a whole, it was like a. It was, it was a, a bazillion a, Jews and they were all connected to this bitch named Nana. <laughs> And Nana and I got off on the wrong foot. Big and fight so, before the show. Big fight where I just asked people if they could move closer to the stage. And Nana said, don't you tell me what to do. <laughs> I've been coming here since I was 24. I was like, Nana, seriously, like, step back. Because Nana was, like, going to fight me. And then and when she's, I got, like, in her, what, 70s? She was in her 70s. And she was a matriarch with, like, little capri pants and a little cutoff crew jacket and a little gray ponytail. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to fight Nana. I can't believe this. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to fight my grandmother. And I was crying going. Stage. Oh my God! How yeah. I'm and then there's I have a gay the Asian show. weeper in the corner, Rich. <laughs> Please stop fighting. And his husband, who's just like my knees hurt, and he's seated with a pie. And David showed up wearing shorts. They yeah. were not allowed right. to have shorts. That was the big in thing. the you private club. Shorts. No shorts. I mean, women are walking around in hoochie mama pants, right? And like little strappy up their up tops. their high knees. But but men had to wear. Well, you know what it is? In, it's in, almost in, like, like another time. It was almost like nobody puts baby in a corner time. You know, what? it was that whole kind of um, what is that like? Uh, Dirty dancing. Uh, yes, yeah. and that whole country club kind of, you know, there's a certain etiquette, there's a certain protocol, but we didn't know any of that because it's 2014 <laughs> when we did the show. You know, it's not 1937 and Jerry right. Orbach is saying nobody puts baby in a corner. Right. And so it was crazy. And Nana and I almost fought. And then I get on stage and I tried to get the room on my side. So I said and you to everybody, did, the classic. And I, I, yeah. eventually I did. But initially, that was once I was like sweating from my ass. I, it was so brutal. And 
and I remember I got up there and I just said like, hey, everybody, like who hates Nana? And then everybody just stared at me because Nana had just thrown a bar mitzvah for the entire room. <laughs> Nobody was on my side. And I realized they were all related to Nana. And then I had to work yeah. like an animal. And I finally, to I win got them. them. Over. Yeah. Because she, I, I mean, them. Nana, just, just to finish the picture, Nana <laughs> yells out, tell some fucking jokes. Yeah, this is an elderly woman in a little crew jacket from like Talbot's. <laughs> Who screams out while I'm up there, tell some fucking jokes. And oh. she wasn't even drunk. I don't even think she was drunk. She was just Nana. She was drunk on rage. Yeah, she was drunk on rage. Crazy. She was, she had, and I thought that is not how you start a show. No, she had a lot of anger. But, you know, the thing again about stand up is like you've got to be a warrior. You've got to be right. a survivor. This business, show business in general, is the worst and the hardest business. But it's also so rewarding and it's so it's a drug. You know, you love it when it's happening. The business stuff is so hard. But in stand up, I always say this. I don't know what it's like for like a ukulele player, <laughs> but I know for like a stand up, it's a bitch. Right. I mean, it was amazing to witness because I was hosting the show. So I right. get up there, I'm doing my stuff, but the room is brewing with rage. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm getting some and laughs. And fear. And fear. And because fear. it wasn't just rage. It was also the fear that Nana would not throw another bar mitzvah if they didn't right. all stay on Nana's right. side. Right, because they were all part of this kind of this like country club thing and she was in charge of whatever and her... her and she was married to some big mucky muck. I, I think her son was some big mucky muck. TV of guy. Some t so everyone was like sucking up. But also yeah. there's all this weird kind of culty codependent thing happening. Terrible. Because it's part of this And then at the end of it, you know, because Rich is one of my best friends and I thought, okay, the, the guy, the Nebuchadnezzar Jewish guy comes over and he's like, he says to me, like, would you try to make up with Nana through Nana's daughter? And I said, absolutely. And the only reason I would eat shit like that is because it's Rich and I love Rich and it's an alternative space and if you wanted to do more shows and the daughter walks over with the Nebuchadnezzar like camp counselor guy and she says this is Mar and before he can get out like this is Mary and she goes I don't want to fucking hear it I don't want to <laughs> fucking hear it no fucking way no fucking way so that was <laughs> Nana's offspring but, she was not having but it but the truth be told what was amazing to watch and what was undeniable was that you had to start at like you were basically the Titanic uh, emotionally, the Titanic happened. There was a big fight, and she yeah. said, "Tell some fucking jokes." And the Titanic had hit the bottom oh, of the ocean. Yeah, and so you had to start from underwater. It wasn't ground zero. It was negative. It was negative, 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 negative like leagues to, under the sea. And you had to grab one person at a time from yeah. the audience and win them. And over. that's what I literally did. You I did. went person to person. That's what I had to do, and talk to them, and try to make them laugh, and finally got them. And I had to work the room an individual at right. a time. But it was a bitch. Amazing, because by the end of that. At 45 minutes, they were all, it was like you had turned the Titanic into a Ferris mm. wheel. And they mm. all got on Thank and you. they were loving it. Yeah. I mean, Nana was even more angry because the only yeah. thing worse than, t you know, trying to bully you is then watching you win the room yeah. over despite that. Right. Oh, my God. And that's what it takes. It basically takes, my father wrote a book called It Would Be So Nice If You Weren't Here. And he wrote it at the height of his fame. So it wasn't like he was struggling and he wrote it. He wrote it because his perspective was so ripe and crisp with this, you know, undeniable reality, which is that mostly you feel like go away in this business. Nobody gives a shit. He once had an agent and the agent, my dad said to the agent, said, I, should I have headshots made? And the agent said, yeah, that way people know who it is they don't want. <laughs> I mean, it's so brutal, but the name of the book is It Would Be So Nice If You Weren't Here. And I asked him one time what the origin of the title was, and he said he was shooting this movie, Eleven Harrow House, with Candace Bergen, and they were sitting in this bell tower waiting to shoot the next scene, and this very proper English woman came in, and she said, are you meant to be in here? And they said no, meaning they just were finding a place to hang out before the next shot. And she said, well, it would be so nice if you weren't here. <laughs> and basically, that's the right. feeling that you get in this business. Right, right, right. You know? Right. At whatever level you're at. I mean, Kevin Costner made Waterworld. You know, it doesn't even matter. Like, you're famous, you're rich, whatever. There's still so much rejection. I mean, I think my dad auditioned like five times for Midnight Run. Right. You know, at one point, I think they were going to cast Cher or Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, it's, it's just a crazy hard business. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, what, what was... Like, when did you, when was the first time in stand-up comedy that you felt like, because there's that whole beginning period where you're like, like that woman heckling you and you're just finding your voice. What was the moment of like, like a there, like I got to this, the certain place where you're like, oh, I can really do this now. Uh, I think the, the place, 
there are a couple there are a couple aspects to that question. There's when you start getting paid and you go because when you first do comedy you don't get paid. Right. And you have to do bringers, which means you have to bring people. And, you know, after a while, you're like, I'm either joining Equinox or a cult because I don't know where I'm supposed to get these people from. Right. Like, how many times can I ask Nana and Aunt Marsha to come to the show? Right. Um, you know, it's like, it's Tuesday night. And uh, so there's the period where you start to make money and you go, this is amazing. Like, I'm getting paid X amount of dollars to do stand up. There's that, but then there's this other thing, which is just the zen of doing stand-up, where you're on stage, and you know you're terrific, and you're in the zone, and they're laughing, and you know you can do this. And I think, you know, I've been doing it a long time, and so it's like being a ball player. You know, you're always as good as your last hit, you know? So you've always got to get up and prove yourself. I mean, no matter who you are, the ball's either going in the basket or it's not. Right. You know, it's there's a purity about that. But when you've been doing it a long time, I think you get to a point where you kind of know you can do this. Right, right. And, and it doesn't mean some shows won't be great and some shows, you know, I had two shows this last weekend at Stand Up New York. The first one was a small audience. I loved them. They were great. They were weird and goofy and I just felt wonderful with them. And the second show was a much bigger audience and I just didn't feel the same chemistry at all. Right, right. I mean, it was it's okay. I did well, but I mean, I, it, well, I didn't really enjoy it. Right, but sometimes it's also like if it's a Friday night and it's the early show, they were all just getting off work, and so they might be all ready to laugh, or they might still be stiff. And then if it's a later show, they might already be blasted from so much liquor right. that you can't, they're like kind well, of Well, like, you know, it's you know. a conversation. I mean, stand-up is a conversation, and no two conversations are ever the same. And so there's always just that chemistry, like the chemistry of a, of a conversation. And some conversations are spectacular and memorable, and others are fine. You know, it wasn't, you didn't fail, but they're not particularly noteworthy. Hmm. So, you know, some of my favorite shows have been so unexpected, meaning that I've gotten up and I thought the audience was going to be difficult or I thought I didn't like them or I thought they didn't like me. And then I've been wonderfully surprised and it's been one of the best shows I've ever done. Right. You know, sometimes you look at a room and it's packed and you think this is going to be great. And for whatever reason, the audience doesn't quite come together. They're weird. There are too many people who English isn't their first language, you know, whatever it is. So like the view. Right. That, that was like a there. Like, are we there? Like, someone wants to get to there. Are people well, that yes wanted. and no. Because the day that I did the view and it was spectacular and hair and makeup, and I went with my good friends, the fabulous comics, Jessica Kirsten and Danny Cohen, they went with me and it was oh. great. And I sat down on the panel and I was really comfortable and it was amazing and all of this stuff. That night, I got a call from Stand Up New York. Can you host the, it was like a Tuesday night. I said, sure. I get there. There's seven Germans in the audience. I couldn't buy a laugh. So I'm in full hair and makeup. And I kept saying to them, I was just on The View. And they were like, what is The View? What's you saying, The View? You know, it was like nobody gave a shit. So they you were felt just like, like, are you Jewish? It, it was hard to even feel like the, the afterglow of I being on The View. I felt the glow until I hit the stage, and then I felt the no. Right, right. The glow to the no. Right. So it's almost like the reality of it. It's every time you get up, it's like just that moment. It's that moment. Your credits mean nothing to a room. The room wants to see you in that moment. Look, even Seinfeld, when he comes into Gotham and he's there a lot and he tries stuff out and he does stuff, for the first, you know, X amount of minutes, they give him your Seinfeld. So the credits and the fact that he's who he is means a lot and they're in the glow. But then he's got to bring it. Then after that, he's got to get the ball in the hoop. And crowds are, you know, they're very tough. And no matter who you are, it only gets you so far. And then you've got to really bring the funny. Right, right. I mean, I've seen, I was at uh, the Montreal Just for Laughs <laughs> Festival a couple, like last a couple months, weeks ago. And I saw, you know, it was in the, in the biggest room, uh, there's a million rooms, but the biggest room I saw this one headliner, he was shooting, and everyone's shooting whatever for TV. And he, some sound cue didn't go right. And he got so in his head and he started spiraling out and yelling shit. You don't want to say who it is? Uh, well, I don't know. I, can I say the name? Of the, I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm, I love him. Todd who? Glass. Okay. And he just got mad right. at the sound cue. And I'm right. Fine. But it really taught me because then he spiraled out. He said, okay, well, don't use that. And then he, he went and did, did they re- did another take. And then right. 
they messed it up again. And he's like, and he could see right. him get in his head. I'm like, oh, my God, just, right. you know, and I'm like, you you could just shoot it again. Just, well, that's the right know. way to say it, though. It got in his head. And right. that's like with anything. That's the battle that comics have on the stage is you don't want to be in your head. And sometimes, you know, somebody with folded arms staring at you gets you in your head. Sometimes a screwed up sound cue gets you in your head. Sometimes people are talking and you can't you can't stop being pissed off or distracted. Right. Right. You know, so it's it's really the Zen of comedy is like just when you're in that zone, when it's, uh, you know, you're open and it's flowing and it's almost like you're a channel. It's right. almost right. like you go into some other kind of consciousness. And it's I mean, not to sound again too heady about it, but I for me, when it's really happening, I mean, there is a real Zen to the art form and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Right. And it doesn't I mean like like Serena Williams. Uh, she was on her way to Grand Slam and. She lost to an unseated person. And it's just in that moment, there's right. that if your mind is not in the game right. or in the zone, right. all that history of championships means nothing. Right. You didn't get the ball over the net right. in that and moment. And again, it doesn't mean nothing. It just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't win you that moment. Right, right. Like all those trophies aren't gonna hit the ball over the net at like, that moment. Right, that's right. But like I've heard people say you're only as good as your last set as a comic. I don't agree with that mm. because I don't think if, if I have a bad set, that doesn't mean I'm a bad comic. Right, it doesn't define right. me. It doesn't feel good and you're dying to get like on the bike again and ride. But I think at the same point, you know, you're allowed to go at a certain point. I know who I am and I have this body of work. I know what I'm capable of. And I had a fucked up night. Right. I remember auditioning for Letterman like a bazillion years ago at the comic strip and I was so not ready. And the comic strip is not a home club of mine. And I never I have good sets there off and on. It's hit and miss with me there. You know, the last time I was there, I had a great set. But I also have gone up there and just been off and not felt like they were my audience and I remember weeping outside in Becky Donahue's arms. And she was like, you've got to pull it together. <laughs> like there were people coming into the club. And she was like, this is so not a good advertisement for a comedy club to see one of the comics sobbing right. in another comic's arms. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think I I don't think that would happen to me again. I mean, who's to say? But like weeping. Right. And when that woman heckled me and was like, you know, you don't have no jokes and your clothes is wrinkled. Like I started to tear up. Yes, I was PMSing, but still there was a tear. Right. And you were early in the game. I was early point. in the game. And now I would have destroyed her. Right. Now for somebody to come at me like that, I would have ripped her apart. I would have kept coming and coming until she was eviscerated because i mean it's like judy gold said you have i mean one of the things as a comic is you have to let them know who's in charge it's very much a power thing right and if you lose control you you're fucked as a comic right it's like it's like a room full of dogs and if That's you right they attack they and they smell it they right. smell your fear right what was what was a surprise like what's something you discovered about yourself that you unexpected in oh this imp improv i when i started doing comic uh, uh, comedy i mean I, I thought i had to do what everyone did which was write bits and go up and i will uh, and i discovered at a certain point that i was really good at improv right that i could just get up there and talk to the audience and not have anything prepared i mean have fallback stuff to go to I mean, if i you needed still have to solid and jokes and you have do, material do the, but it yeah. doesn't turn me on right the way improv does because there's something about walking that high wire where it's really in the moment it's happening in real time it hasn't been created previously and then brought to stage it's happening in the moment there's something that is exhilarating and the audience about can't, that. can't stop watching i mean you can you know, see the room yeah clinging to the edge of their seat yeah like well i feel that way when i watch somebody do improv because you're really aware it's like a tennis match it's like this is happening right now and if the ball doesn't go over the net like ooh, and if the ball goes over the net it's like yeah right you right. know and it's and we're all in on it it's kind of like we're all creating it at the same time i will say this though um, when you ask, like, what was a surprise? Another piece of that is, do I think that it would have been wiser of me to have focused more on material in terms of getting where I wanted to get in this career? Yes, and I think that's a mistake that I've made. I mm. think that it's really great to be able to do what I can do with improv, but I think in terms of getting television stuff and getting on late night and getting, you've got to, you've got to have material that's always changing and growing so i think that's a mistake i've made wow yeah, yeah. i mean i guess it's interesting because it's it because I, I i i i seen you a million times in the clubs and going wow she's blowing everybody away with this this it's this ephemeral skill that 
can't be. I mean, I guess Todd Berry. I have actually I haven't seen his ta- his uh, his uh, crowd work crowd work uh, piece that he put out of just clips of his crowd work. But, right. But it's it, a, it's actually his latest stand up is called something like crowd, crowd work. work. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because I'm like, wow, this is such a. It's so on fire, but it's never the same twice. I mean, I know there might be a bit or two about this kind of a person with glasses or that kind of a person who looks, I don't know, whatever, a lot of cleavage or something. You know, there's, right. there's archetypes in an audience that you can always go to, but it's what you do when you read the person psychologically and emotionally and then you go from there. And it's almost, and there's moments where it's almost like you're, you're like a medium and you're reading them and their childhood and their past. <laughs> and the audience is like gasping. And you're, but you're spot on. Well, I always joke, I'm like the white Miss Cleo. Because <laughs> right. I literally will say to somebody, like, you're in real estate, but you just lost your job. And they're like, oh my God. And right. so sometimes I'm really, I mean, I think, I, I, not to sound whatever, but I think I'm also a little clairvoyant because no, I, but you are. I you sometimes are. I've seen like it. will know stuff about somebody that it's like, how would I have known that? But I am also really good at just like pulling off someone's energy but again when you go to do letterman well it's not letterman anymore when you go to do stephen colbert now when you go to do um conan when you go to do jimmy kimmel when you go to do any of these things like you said what i'm doing there's an ephemeral ethereal all those e-words aspect (laughs) to it and you have to be able to go i have four minutes of material because you can't go on late night and do crowd work right right you can't just improvise okay just Marion Groden's going to improvise for the next... And you know what? I probably could, but they wouldn't let me. Right. And it's also weird because when you're in a studio, there's all this stuff in front of you, between right. you and the audience. It's not an organic right. situation where you can... You know, I mean, I shot some obscure cable thing once, and it was like me. The camera was right in front of me. There were go-go dancers just to my left, and then behind the cameras and the go-go dancers were a, you know, a panel, a studio audience. How can I even connect to them? Right. I've got all this equipment in front of me that I, I can't, what I'm supposed to do? I can't walk out of my spot. What did I, you do? It was, uh, it, I was doing it to the two guys that were standing there in their underwear and two girls with like pasties. And, and they were like half present. And I was like, oh God, it was just, it and was. that's the, when you know you've made it. When you're <laughs> doing it to two guys in their underwear <laughs> and two girls with pasties. That's your moment where you go, we're, are we here yet? Yeah, are we there yet? Yeah, are we we're there. there. Are we there, we're there. yet? We're, yeah. We're there yet. But there the yet. other thing I was going to say about that, I think for me, part of what happens is when I get on stage, the most compelling reality for me is what's right in front of me. Right. Right, and then it's I, more interesting to me. Right, I, do I call out? Okay, these guys both are in their underwear. These girls have pasties. And well, that's what I mean. So if there's someone sitting in front of me, and you know the woman is thirty years younger than the guy, and they're clearly a couple, and she looks like she was just imported here through a catalog. How for me? How do I not? That is so absorbing to me that it's almost like AD, ADD, you know, I'm almost like I'm so distracted right. by that, that to then go into like, so how about buying a bathing suit? It's just, <laughs> right. I mean, right. I can right. do it, right. but it almost feels like, wah, wah. right. And it also feels like, uh, there's a fire right in front of Completely. me that I have to poke. Completely. And, and I find, you know, Don Rickles, actually, he used to have them seat the sort of oddest people and the most provocative and visually interesting people right in front of him because that right, was what he right. that's what he does. Right, right. And so now at Gotham, the woman who seats the room actually has been telling me, she goes, do you think it's a coincidence that there are all these like colorful characters up front? I said, are you serious? She said, I've been seating the room that way for you for a long time. Oh my God. Yeah. That's great. So great. again, what's hard about it is it doesn't transfer or translate to a lot of industry stuff. Right. Because you have to be able to say, I'm auditioning with my four minutes. I'm going right. to go to Montreal wanna, with my five minutes, right. whatever it is. And they want to see this like your, it's sort of like the gap. You want to see t-shirt, jeans, belt, They want to see shoes. your brand. Yeah. We, they want to see your, br- they like, want to see what you can bring. And there are comics that do improv. Like I think Ellen DeGeneres does improv when she's on stage. And well, Paula Poundstone, I know, right, saves right. a part of her show specifically to be able to do a bunch of improv. And I've even seen Paula have taped specials where the majority of it was improv. And it's phenomenal. It's right, like, right. I, and I go, oh my God, that's what I, but she's so um, captivated 
by the people's stories and playing off it and doing callbacks, which is, again, my love, that that's what enthralls her to the point that she doesn't want to just do 45 minutes of jokes she wrote 10 years ago. Right, right, right. Well, even like I, it, this is also Montreal. So Jeff Ross, and it, at the end of it, he says, "Okay, who wants to volunteer to be roasted?" He just brings up it's fabulous all those people and just like right slices each person's head off right one at a time. <laughs> right. And and as with any good comedian, as you said before, you know, a lot of it's improv, and a lot of what we're doing are things we've said before. In fact, I did a I did a bit the other night. There was a cop in the audience from Connecticut, and I was giving him shit, and I said like really you're a cop in Connecticut like what was your last bust you know you were like hold it in an Eddie Bauer store you need a medium <laughs> you know <laughs> right and it was right it was improv it's great right but Ted Alexandro who's fucking genius a very good friend of mine and just such a tremendous talent and such a sweet guy you know came up to me and he said Mare I know that was improv but that's a bit and you you'll be able to do it again and I wouldn't have recorded that so yeah, there's a lot of yeah right, there's a right. lot of improv stuff that you can bring back as material right Cause I'm, uh, yeah because I find like I always tape everything I do because that's something's smart. gonna happen I don't and I should yeah because I just watch it right even though half the time, even if it's a good show, I don't want to watch the tape because I'm like, oh my god, there's a one. There could, be, there, could, there could be a hundred things that happened, and I can only remember the one weird, painful, embarrassing thing that wasn't that big a deal. But right. in my head, right. I wanted that one line to crush. Even though, oh wait, there's like seven things you just did that are amazing. You got to save it. Well, that brings you know? up another point, which is I really think as a comic and as an artist in general, you know, I hate watching myself. A lot of people can't stand watching themselves. You have to kind of put almost that preciousness aside and be able to sort of be a scientist with your own creation. Johnny Depp was being interviewed the other night and he was saying he cannot watch himself and a lot of actors feel that way and they, it's so his movie Black Mass is coming out, which I'm dying to see and he gets to the screening and the director says it would really mean a lot to me if you would stay and so he's just consumed with nerves Johnny Depp right. at the point that he's right. at and he stayed and he watched it but he said it was so difficult and he was really able to appreciate the good acting of the other actors but it's cringeworthy for a lot you know just because right. we watch ourselves and we go oh my god what is wrong with my hair look at my right. ass look at my you know oh my god my bra like one breast is lower than the other you know whatever it is we pick ourselves apart right. so but you do have to saying all that to say you do have to be able to watch yourself for example i'm shooting this thing that i told you about uh, for banco tv and you know we have to be able to look at it again almost scientifically and go that works that doesn't work that's not a good tendency that's something that that is a good tendency let's do more of that right build on this edit that it's easier for a director because it's not them right and it's not personal they're it's just, not personal they're shaping it's not it and, right 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 it, but there's a kind of um excruciating subjectivity heightened subjectivity when it comes to watching yourself and it's very hard to be i don't even know if it's feasible to be objective but to even approach that is so difficult right so we're so self-critical right it's hard it, I, th I think the the biggest thing that i've learned is like i i I have to sneak up on myself and make myself listen. I can't do it. Sometimes I can't watch it th right after the show because I'm like, I'm so excited, but I'm also terrified. So if I sneak up and if I'm on the treadmill or the bike or whatever, and I can sort of listen to it not without the high stakes, of right. this has to be perfect. Right. And then go, oh, hey, I like that. And then, okay, ooh, I don't like that. Ooh, I like that. But then and, you, you know. get somebody who validates your insecurity like my therapist saw me on The View. And I said, and this is a tape I used and I crushed and whatever. And I hadn't watched it in a while, but I mean, it's a great piece of footage. I use it all the time. People have seen it a lot. And she goes, I saw it. And it was kind of like a, a lull. And I went, seriously, you're just going to say you saw it? You're not going to tell me what you thought? And she goes, well, in typical therapy fashion, it's like, what did you think of it? Uh, and then, uh, you know, I said whatever did you I said. spiral out of that? Yeah. And then she said, um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought I, I thought there were moments where, you know, you weren't killing. And, you Are know, you still with this therapist? Yes. Yes. And she's very uh, good. And I looked at it again and I thought. I, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I say that to say that to just kind of accentuate the point that you have to grow a really thick skin right, right. and then go back and look at it and go, okay, do I agree with her? Do I do? I don't like that she said it, but this can't be about what you like and dislike. It has to be what is. Right. You know, and then you can really look at it. Right. Because you can't move. You can't move to the next. Like you got there. But now, if you want to get from there to the next, 
Well, that's exactly place. right. You and be able to. to go, let's say, okay, I did, like you just were saying, I did an hour somewhere and, you know, this, 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 and this really work. And this, this, and this worked less. Right. Well, and right. and to be able to look at that, you have to be able to do that unless you have a genius editor, manager, director who's doing it for you. And most of us don't have that. Yeah. But also we in, it's also an internal like a, it's like a psychic muscle. If we don't strengthen, though, we have to see what wasn't working to go. Oh, I was doing this weird thing right. emotionally. Like I remember one time I was you were we were doing a session the other. You were like we were watching a set I was doing and you were able to go. Okay, what's going on here? Right. You just did a bunch. No, I just was repeating. You were repeating what he said. You were making fun of his accent. I'm like, right. I wasn't. And then I realized, oh, sh- I you am. were having brown shame. Right. And so I said, oh, my God. Yeah. I just racially profiled another brown person. Right. You're like, that's and, the joke. And now it's something you say Hilarious. in your act that's yeah. really funny. So right. the thing is, it's like, again, the Zen of comedy. It's like if you're willing to keep peeling the onion and peeling the layers and going deeper, you get to the great stuff. But it's birthing pains. And sometimes along the way, you're like, I don't want to do this. You this made sucks. me cry. I cried. Yeah, you I you cried. cried in the session. <laughs> You cried. And then finally you were like, I racially profiled another brown person. I said, that's so funny. Right. That's so funny. And right. it's it's psychologically interesting and truthful and right. it's comedically interesting. So, But it makes me it, – it made me more honest about myself. But also without that honesty, I can't be funnier. Right. Because now I see – when I see something happen, I could just say, oh, that's a blowout. Right. Because now right. I'm not afraid to call myself out. Well, it's interesting you say that. I was on sta- – you, you – the other thing Judy Gold to me, said to me, Judy Gold, who's so phenomenal and such a powerhouse, she yeah. said to me, you, you have to be, you have to have the control up there. So that was great for me to know because if I ever lose that, you better get it back right away. And the other thing she said was you really have to know who you are as a comic. So, for example, the brilliant Jessica Kirsten gets up right. and she's dropped a lot of weight, but when she was quite heavy – the idea that the audience would gain any power over her or leverage because they could make fun of her weight, she'd beat you to it. It's like one night I was on stage at Dangerfields. I don't want to brag. And um, <laughs> and Dangerfields where it's still like the scene of Goodfellas. And I was basically wearing like a cape. And this guy yelled out something about my weight. And I said, sir, seriously, you think you're going to make me uncomfortable about my weight? I'm wearing a cape. I said, it's 90 <laughs> degrees out and I'm basically in a tarp. It's like a curtain from, you know... <laughs> From Wicked. So, you know, <laughs> trust me, I, I nobody understands better than I what I'm dealing with. So, Right, and you take thing. away the power totally. from the heckler because you're totally. like, uh, yeah. And you have to, again, you have to know who you are. You have to know if you're coming off as really neurotic, you better know that. If you're making jokes about yourself dating and you're a certain age or overweight or, you know, you just have to know all that stuff because they see it. Right. And so if you don't, if you don't, be, it's like being on the school schoolyard when you were a kid. If you don't beat them to the joke, you know, right. you're a victim. Right, right. I mean, I remember I did this show. I think, oh, you saw this. I, I did this show at, at the Metropolitan Room and there was a, like, I don't know, maybe 10 steroided out, super Guido. That was an awesome set. Yeah. These Guido homophobic guys that were kind of pretty. They were right. like beautifully, right. you know, in great shape. And at one point they were just like just yelling out whatever and i was like i just looked at one of them said sir your shirt's halfway to anal right relax fabulous and i just said i don't care what team you're on we're doing it right and i just turned it on them where they're like oh right they had no yeah you pulled the rug out from under them and you sort of flashed their reflection in a mirror and it gave you the power but that's always what it is you know for it's like you're heckling them right Right. And, and again, it is about always having the power. I mean, there's that great scene in that Eddie Murphy movie, The Nutty Professor, where Dave Chappelle's on stage and he's heckling uh, Eddie Murphy as a big obese guy. And he just he just eviscerates him. And then Eddie Murphy comes back later and takes Chappelle down. So it's, you know, basically stand up. A lot of it is like snapping. You're snapping on someone or you're snapping on a subject and your snaps have to be better than the other guy's right, snaps. Right, it's like throwing shade. Your, your yeah. shade's got to be darker. Your shade's got to be darker and stronger, you know? Right, right. It's like a drag off. But yeah. It's, but like, you know, but a verbal drag off. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. What's going on now? You have a project. So I have a project that I'm working on with my manager and with Vic DiPetetto, the wonderful and hilarious Vic DiPetetto. Yeah. And we are working on something that will be on Banco TV. 
So it's BoncoTV.com. And I don't even understand. I mean, the hilarious thing is people are like, you're working on the show. How can I see it? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. I go and we shoot this thing and you can get it through Roku, which sounds like you get a dumpling. Oh, I don't even Roku. know. What the, it's like Roku. It's like a or, box. You get, it's yeah. Like, there's Apple TV. Google, there's Roku. Uh, Fire. Apple, Google, <laughs> Earth, Wind, Fire, and Fire, Earth, Wind, and Fire, <laughs> celebrate good times. You know, Roku, you get a spring roll and broccoli with chicken. I don't but even they, know. But they can Google. But and that's find. the hilarious thing is that it, it's something I'm doing and I couldn't tell you how to access it it's if my so, life depended on it. It's so high on. tech, it's out of it's, here. Yeah, but it actually isn't. The really cool thing is that nowadays, nowadays, <laughs> dating myself nowadays. Like Haberdashery. Yeah, exactly. Britches. Um, <laughs> you know, all of this stuff is more integrated, and so it's not so unusual, and they sell TVs with this stuff built in and, and all of that stuff. But anyway, we're doing this thing for Bonko TV, and it's www.bonkotv.com. So it's B-O-N-K-O. Oh, and it's Vic and I, and um, it's it's the Vic D. Potato Show with Marion Groden, and it's hilarious, and we're working on it. We're going to roll it out in the next month. Um, and also just touring and doing stand-up all the time. And a year ago, toured with my book, which is still probably you can get on Amazon called Standing Up. Uh, uh, what is What is the book called? It's interesting because the a book... A Funny Not Always Life. Yeah, a Funny Not Always Life, yeah. Right. And it's it has some really heavy moments, too. Absolutely. Well, it's a memoir. You know, when they asked me to write a memoir, uh, this agent came to me and asked me to write a memoir. I was like, isn't that for Peter Ustinoff? And then I thought about my life, and I was like, I am Peter Ustinoff. <laughs> like, I've had so much shit happen to me. Great stuff, difficult stuff, stuff that a lot of people have gone through, and I thought, you know, if it's helpful to people, I would be thrilled. But I felt like it was, it was, there was like a certain amount that was just ridiculously hilarious but there's another part that was really inspired it was just inspiring mm, i felt you. like I, I don't know it was it was part marion williamson oprah ish right in this kind of because there's you I mean there was a hard journey with with uh with substance abuse and and you know breast you cancer breast divorce cancer, different divorce. addictions right, right so it's like you know a lot of people reached out to me that were going through divorce that were going through breast cancer that were dealing with substance abuse or had a child dealing with addiction so it was really gratifying i did a 35 city tour and it was really a remarkable experience to first of all to have written a book i used to say so i had breast cancer 11 years ago and i used to say like when you would compare something to something being difficult, I would say, at least it's not cancer. And writing the book was so arduous that after the book, I would say, at least I don't have to write a book. <laughs> it was that. I'd rather have cancer yeah, exactly. than I have mean, to it write was a so, book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was so, you know, I mean, it was so arduous and people would say we're going out to dinner or we're going to a movie or uh, you know do you want to go and i would just look at them and go the book i mean it was just consuming you know right, it took me right. two years when there was a time where i couldn't even see you it no like you i didn't just, see anybody like, i just was at starbucks writing you this were sequestered book. with i was sequestered people would come visit me in my office and like have a crawler and i'd be weeping right but you know a lot of people were like wasn't it really cathartic to write the book and i was like it wasn't that cathartic because i had to walk through all of that again so there were some spiritual lessons that were, um, you know, illuminating. But, you know, to have to write the dialogue of my the end of my marriage or discovering a tumor or, you know, sub, you know, having a, basically a breakdown from drug and alcohol addiction. But the amazing news is I'm here. You know, that was really the message of the book is that I'm here. And truly, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And um, so many people go through all these things. You know, people have said to me, oh, you've had a hard life. I don't know. I think a lot of people have hard lives. And some people have had much worse stuff than I've had. And some people have had less than I've had. But the relatability, I think, was what was really rewarding to me, that it resonated with so many right. people. Right. I mean, you. there was a time, I guess there was a period when, one of the, one of the moments I don't know why this sticks with me, but there was a moment when you were with your mother, and you were playing this game of uh, let's lay down in the back of this wagon. Or right. Something. And when I was a kid, I joked that other kids got like good night moon or whatever their fairy tales were, and my mother, who I had a really complicated, wonderful, very difficult relationship with, full, full, full of love. She would, we would lie down in bed. We slept in the same bed until I was 13. And she would say, let's pretend we're in the back of a wagon. And I'd go, okay. And she'd go, and we're wounded. And I'd say, how badly? And she'd say, not badly enough that we're in any real pain, but badly enough that no one can ask us to do anything. And I thought, yeah, no wonder I can't fucking get out of bed. So, you know, I'm in the back of a fucking wagon. I'm still right. in a wagon. And she said, and let's... 
pretend we're waiting for someone to rescue, to rescue us. us. Yeah. So oh I'm not one of these people that goes to therapy and the therapist has to go, now, why do you think it is you're so paralyzed? I can go, <laughs> okay, listen to what happened. You know what I mean? Like I've got the script. I was given an actual script that said you're going to be paralyzed in the back of a wagon. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was that's such a powerful thing to teach your kid. Like, right. This is a game. Yeah, that was not one of her better lessons. <laughs> but, you know, there were great lessons from her and she was amazing. I've never known anyone like her and she died. But she was also so way compassionate. Too young. She was creative. amazing. She was amazing. So it was just, she was so know. funny. And I don't know. I've never met anyone like her. Just the most original, pure, um, genuine overused words like authentic but she was spirit I think that, that i've that's ever also, met that's also the gift of our childhood is it's always a complex it's it's not you know for everybody for everybody i mean, I mean occasionally you meet someone and it's not but for most people and i mean i'm in recovery so i go to meetings and i've been sober clo- going towards 30 years you wow. know and wow. um so yeah i mean i was just telling you about a friend of mine that um you know, without going into specifics because it's his story, but some stuff that was, you know, unfathomable. People I know in the rooms that um, have been through just unbelievable things, things that have happened when they're in a blackout, you know, just rough stuff. Right, and and you just have today. Just be in today. Right. What are, what are the next steps from here? Like, how do, If you want to get to there, you have to really be here. Right. And I think also, you know, you are like not to sound hokey, but you are the sum of all the things that have happened to you. And, you know, do I think that I would have uh, the compassion and empathy for a lot of people uh, that I have gratefully if I hadn't been through all this? Maybe not. So, you know, there's um, there's this there's this spiritual axiom that says no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And I think that's so true. I think that the more sort of your heart cracks and um, you go through difficulty, you know, if it doesn't destroy you, sort of people say that's where your heart grows is in the cracks. Right, because there's, there's, I always feel like there's this adaptive thing that happens that you become more powerful. I mean, I remember my first breakup, I mean, when I was like, God, a tween, a twink, and I thought the world was ending. Right, sure. I had no, I mean, nothing else existed other than this guy that, you know, and I was so thankful, you know, later because my first, my own first steps of like spiritual recovery were like, oh, my happiness is not dependent on whether or not this person had a nice day or whether or not they are dating me. Or I mean, they were this, I just remember him saying, I need space. I said, okay, I'm going to do laundry. And I'll come back. He's like, no, I really need to. Okay, <laughs> right. I'm going to do exactly. Then I'll dry it. You and, and your it. laundry are going. <laughs> He's yeah. like, no, I need a lot. I need you yeah. to leave. I'm I like, need you to oh, take your whites and your no colors. No idea. Yeah. But I, I needed to take responsibility for my feel. I had no idea that I was putting all this on this other person. Well, codependency, and right. you know, and a lot of us have it. But again, I think that. You know, life is what's the first line of that wonderful book, The Road Less Traveled, that life is difficult. Mm. And for some reason, a lot of us think it shouldn't be and are surprised and constantly trying to adjust to the reality that it is. And it is difficult. And um, there's a lot of beauty in life and there's a lot of hardship, you know, and and things are multicolored meaning that you know when i had breast cancer uh when my mother was dying there were a lot of amazing times of love and compassion and beauty in some of the worst things that have ever happened to me yeah you you have a moment in your book too you talk about i think you were in you were going in i guess for chemo and there was like it was the weirdest room it was like it was jessica kirsten phil donahue And my dad, I was getting, and and my, and my husband at the time, you know, it's, uh, I say it that my husband at the time, like I have a different husband every hour, but you know, it was amazing because chemo for me was like, I was always talking to people and was like, so listen, what are you up to? You want to come by? And so, you know, it was like, no shit. Want to do a tight five. Yeah, exactly. It was like, what is it? No sex in the champagne room. It was like, you know, no laughs in the chemo room. So, you know, you'd pass other people and they'd be sitting there and obviously glum doesn't, it's it's, it's very difficult, difficult. but I am a social person and so much of my lifeline is other people and being extroverted, it really takes care of me. It's, you know, salvation. So my dad was there with Phil Donahue and I think like they'd had a cocktail and Jessica Kirsten, who's one of the funniest people on the planet and and my husband at the time and we just had 
huge laughter to the point that at one point this nurse came in and she said, um, I'm not going to be able to do her voice. She was Irish. And she said, um, some of the other patients are complaining about the noise in your room. I hate to ask, but could you keep it down in here? I think we were probably the only people in the history of Sloan Kettering that were ever asked to keep it down in the chemo room. So, and then my hair grew in and it was wildly frizzy like a tight, angry Shirley Temple thing. And a friend of mine left a message on, at the time, this was a long time ago, my voicemail machine. And she said, God, I saw you at the Gotham Christmas party and you were dancing and it's so great to see, you know, that you're out there and you're living after everything you've been through and you were wearing that crazy wig. And <laughs> that wasn't a wig. <laughs> that was me. That was my hair. And <laughs> people would, sometimes people would see my hair and they go, I love your hair. You know, is I mean, is that expensive to have that kind of curl? I, I said, it, it is. Where do you get it done? Sloan, Sloan Kettering. Kettering. Yeah. Is it, it is. It's costly. It's tens of thousands of dollars to get this kind of tight What's curl. What's that cut called? It's called chemo. Yeah. It's called there was a lump in my breast. <laughs> you know, there was some, there was a golf ball in my breast that shouldn't have been there. Yeah. Uh, the, the color would be called uh, grapefruit size. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what shade of grapefruit are you wearing? Right, but uh, right. again, it's. You know, life is an amazing thing, and a lot of people go through really rough stuff. What, what is next then? So the the Bonco Boncos is so Bonco TV. So we're working on that. I've just started working with this manager, Russell Best, that is, seems terrific, and I'm excited because I've never had a manager so before. Now, now, how did that happen? <laughs> So that's interesting. There's always like, how do people like? How does that happen, right? Because right, right. so many people don't have any anybody right. rooting for they're them, and this just guy drifting. Seemed, There's yeah, comics is drifting. A lot of drifting universe. in this business, unfortunately, and you feel very not rooted for most of the time, and no one to advocate for you. I um I opened for Vic DiPetetto at Gotham, and Russell was there, and Russell saw me, and I killed, and he came over to me, and he was like, "Who are you?" And I was like, I'm Marion Groden. He was like, you're a beast. And in this business, that's a compliment. I mean, normally right. you say to a 54-year-old woman, you're a beast. And it's like, oh, my God, I've got to get on Slim Fast. Like, what is happening <laughs> to me? I'm a beast. But this was a compliment. And I asked him to rep me. And he said, I think you're really, really talented. But I'm not in a position to do that right now. And about three months later, he called me and said, some things have shifted. And it makes more sense. And I'd love to manage you. Wow. So wow. and more will be revealed, but he seems good, and he reps Vic DiPetetto and every Italian comic. And uh, no, not every Italian, but I'm. I think I'm the only female, and I think I'm the only Jew. Right. It's a lot of Italian guys, but I'm really grateful because to have anybody that in, is invested in you and seems to care and is tremendous. Right. I mean, I guess also, what are your? Th and this is this is like the I don't know the the zeitgeist since I don't know the New York Times article, women aren't funny. Like as a female comic, I mean, you can't uh, you can't avoid that label or part of being called here coming to the stage a comedian. Right, right. I mean, I think that's it's all bullshit. Challenge. I think people are funny or they're not funny, and I think that the standards for women are much higher than they are for men. And I think there are a lot of really mediocre men working in the clubs and working in general. That if women were producing the same thing that those men were producing, they wouldn't be working. Mm. And sexism and misogyny, but sexism, I don't even, yeah, I think are alive and well in the field of comedy. You know, people see like Chelsea Handler and they see Ellen and they think like, oh my God, it's the same for men as it is for women. No, you're seeing some successful women, but any night that I'm on stage in New York, I can promise you, I mean, I did shows all weekend. I was the only female on every show I did. Right, right. Or there's one other, or or it's called a women's show, and it's like ladies let loose. Like we always seem to have broken free, and we're just running in the streets. You know, right. we've escaped, and we're running, and we're in a herd. It's not a guy's gone crazy. Or no, guys it doesn't. Guys right. are supposed to be wild. And Asian women. homosexuals gone crazy. <laughs> you know, but it's always if it's a gay show, it's gotta you know, it's gotta be typed as a gay show. Right, and it has to be on fire and like. Right, and if it's a brown show, then it's gotta be. There's gotta be that little twist that lets you know it's not white people. And right, right. So I hate all that because I just think, I think there are not that many people that are really funny. Like I don't think it's a ton of people. And I think that it's such a special thing and a specialty that that's what should be acknowledged and all this other stuff shouldn't be what it's about. I mean, you can have 
50, I hate to say it, but it's true, 50 white guys that all kind of remind you of each other. If you have a gay comic or a brown comic or a gay brown comic or a woman comic, often the voice is a lot more original Mm. and a lot more specific and unique to them and not generic and not so repeatable. But the the majority of people that you see in comedy clubs are straight white guys. It's still that way. And nothing against them but I just don't think that should be the rule. Right. But I, I, and I also feel like sometimes I've, and then maybe it's my own unconscious bias, but I've sometimes, I feel like, like women aren't allowed to be as sexually aggressive right. as men or gay. I mean, I'm a gay comic, but don't be a sexually aggressive well, gay this comic. Is, this is what I know? always say about men and women as comedians. I feel like society automatically, unconsciously, reflexively, uh, a lot's power to straight men. Right, right. That's just inherent. And so when you get on a stage as a female, inherently you are challenging the power structure. And even though things are better than they were, they're not where they should be. Right. There's still tons of inequality. There's still tons of, of uh, hatred towards women and misogyny and sexism out there and objectification. And so when a woman gets on stage, she's got to earn that pretty fast. Whereas with a man, I think it's just allotted to him. I don't think a man has to prove himself and prove that he has a right to have a voice and be empowered. I think it's just more intrinsically given to him. Right, right. There's definitely, I mean, and also it's and then just in my own experience, it's just there's a there's a heterosexist privilege as well. That's like, right. As a gay comic. I mean, I passed at this club and the owner was like, you're funny. I didn't expect this, this or that. You know, how long are you really confident? Right. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, people say that they're OK with the gay thing, but they're not. Right. I mean, he's saying this. This is what he's saying to me. I get told the same thing. You know. I get told when people a certain club, and I won't say the club, but the owner and I got into a big argument because he said when people call and the headliner's female, he said, you killed tonight, you were awesome, but I wouldn't headline you. And I said, why? And he said, because if people call and the, and the headliner's female, they'll, they'll ask for a different date to make a reservation. Wow. And, you know, really, like, you're not really allowed to do that. You know, you're not, you shouldn't, you know, in this day and age, I mean, what's different about that than saying we're not using a black comedian or we're not using someone in a wheelchair? Right, like, right. none of it's okay. Right. And they say, you know, Andrew Jackson is headlining and, well, this is a white Andrew Jackson or this is a black Andrew right, Jackson? Right, like, exactly. No one, you know. But I mean, right. but just uh, just to finish the thought, Kamal the, Middleton, but he's white. Oh, right, okay, right, you know, right. put us down for seven. Caleb. Yeah. You know. exactly. But uh, but but the owner, I mean, said to me, "Hey, you know, uh, I'll, I'll I'll pass you. Just you know, just lay off the gay stuff." And I was like, "Uh, thank right. you." Right. Not that I'm like I don't go galloping on stage with a unicorn. Right. But the fact that it's okay to say that. Well, exactly. Don't don't be too much of a woman on stage. Right. Can you like? You know, don't be so Jewy. I don't. Right. I mean, no, exactly. Not that that's why, your identity, why is but any of it OK? But no one says don't. And be there's s- no one would ever say don't be such a straight white male. On right. Stage. Well, that's like, right. no one would ever say well, that. that's the point. That's the point is that's the norm. And that's what's accepted. And that's, you know, still people go. That's number one. Right. And then everything else it's is sort of behind like that. And I've the, had yeah. so many people come up to me and say and I know what they're going to say when they say it. Men that have come up to me and said, you know, I uh, I got to tell you. And the minute they go, right, I got to right. tell you. I know what they're going to say. Saying. I never thought women were funny, but you were really funny. And they don't realize it's like Chris Rock had this thing in his act where he said people were talking about I think was it Barack Obama? I guess Barack Obama. And he said, you know, people are saying like, "Oh, he's so articulate. He's so intelligent." They're like, "What the fuck?" He's like, "What the fuck did you think was going to come out of his mouth?" Right. Like, right. "Yo, you know, it's they don't realize it's so offensive to come up to me and say, you know, you were really funny, but I never thought women were funny. Well, that's revealing about your bigotry. That's not right. because, right. yeah, I'm a really good comic, but it's more revealing about you than about the fact that I'm funny. Right. That's all about your prejudices that were holding you back. It is. Right. It is. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, my God. Wow, look at the time. So, we have, we've hit almost one hour. <laughs> this has been amazing. This has been so amazing. It's I, been so amazing. And this has been the first official... And, and we never got tired of talking to I, each I, other. It just flew past. It did. Marion, thank you so much for doing I love my you. podcast. I love you. And I, I hope that too. people listen. Rich is fabulous. He's going to have amazing guests coming up. Please tune in and support him and check him out and tell other people and post it and all that stuff because he's one of the 
funniest, sweetest guys working. Oh, and Mary, you can go to MarionGrodin.com. That's M-A-R-I-O-N-G-R-O-D-I-N.com. And look out for Bonco TV. That's really, we're going to start to roll out the promo. So it's www.boncotv.com. And check that out with Marion Grodin and Vic Potato. B-O-N-K-O-TV.com. Correct. Love you, boo. Thank you mm-hmm. so much, Marion. Well, that was our first episode of We There Yet. For more information about our guests or upcoming shows, please go to WTYPod.com. That's WTYPod.com. I'm Rich Kiamko. Thank you so much. It's a comedy journey. 